welcome to the hills. All of you watching online and all of you in person at West Fort Worth, North Richmond Hills, and South Lake Campus. We're starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount, but first a few things to celebrate. And the first thing I want to do is thank all of you uh, for last Sunday. Our Easter celebration was absolutely incredible, and so many of you accommodated by moving to a different time than you normally attend to make room for more. And because of that, at every campus, we had room for all, and we had a lot of people come. So thank you for being generous, loving God, loving your neighbor. Now, speaking of Easter celebrations, we're a church planting church, and I heard from a couple of our planters last week. So uh, the Brammers in San Luis Obispo, Brent and Jenna, they started a church. They launched just a couple of months before COVID and outbreak and shutdown. So their church is not three years old yet, and last Sunday they had over 900 people come and celebrate Easter, five baptisms. And then, almost as amazing, the uh, Mullins, Terrence and Emma, have started History Maker Church in Miami. They launched last fall, brand new church, and last Sunday over 700 people came and celebrated Easter with them. So, if you're a guest, we are a church that believes that God gives churches visions. And our vision is to ask for nations and generations. In the next five years, we want to start or plant 15 new churches. Another part of that vision is to see people come to faith in Christ. We want to see 1,825 people baptized into Christ in five years. Why? Because that's one person a day, and that's what the New Testament church did. So I just thought I'd share with you, in the first 117 days of our year, we've had 141 people decide to be baptized in Jesus. Can we celebrate that too? Now, the first word of our vision is ask. Ask for nations and generations. So get on our website, look at those goals every week, and pray and ask God for big things. And one of those goals is to see over 2,000 people a year serve children. And a great way to do that is Renew Serve. And so plug in next Saturday and let's go out and let's be salt and light in our city. Now, Sermon on the Mount. A young Bible student in college wants to do everything according to the book. He wants a chapter and verse for everything. He comes to a problem because he starts to date a young girl he's attracted to. And when he takes her home from a date, he wants to kiss her goodnight. But he can't find a chapter and verse that says he can. He thinks maybe greet one another with a holy kiss will work, but his Bible professor says that's not about dating. So he takes her home one night, about to say goodbye. She pushes him up against the wall, plants a big old kiss on his face. He starts screaming, chapter and verse, chapter and verse. She says, Matthew 7, 12, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. <laughs> okay. Now that joke will work at any church, but here's the thing. That joke will work at a business conference. That joke will work at a civic event. That might even work in a locker room. Why? Because even if they don't know who said it, almost everybody has heard that phrase. And that's what makes a great speech when it's filled with lines that you can't forget even if you can't remember who said them. So we're going to have a little quiz for the next couple of minutes. I'm going to give you lines of some of my favorite speeches ever and see if you know who said them. Four score and seven years ago. Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address, you ought to read it if you haven't. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And it gets better from there. How about this? It might be a little harder. So let us brace ourselves for our duties. That should the British Empire and Commonwealth last a thousand more years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Who said that? 
That's Winston Churchill, 1940, in the House of Commons, as the bombs of the Nazi Blitzkrieg are falling on London. Now, these next three are in my lifetime. Who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This is the first inaugural address of John F. K. in 1960, and it inspired thousands of young people to enter the Peace Corps. Or how about, Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. 1987, Ronald Reagan, and many credit his speechcraft with adding fuel to the fire that led to the fall of communism. And finally, the greatest speech of my lifetime, I have a dream today. 1963, Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial. If you haven't, you need to listen to or read that speech. When he says, I have a dream today, that one day little black boys and little black girls will hold hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. And if your heart doesn't leap, you need to get a transplant. Now, here's the thing. You've heard those lines, even if you're not sure who said those words. And that's what I think makes the Sermon on the Mount the greatest speech ever. Because you could go almost anywhere and say these phrases and people have heard them. You're the light of the world. Turn the other cheek. Give us today our daily bread. No one can serve two masters. Judge not lest you be judged. Or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And people know those words and they resonate with those words even if they don't know who said those words. See, I'm going to contend that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest speech ever for two reasons. One is durability. It was 2,000 years ago and people still read it every day. And the lines are still well known. And it's transformative power. It has changed the lives of millions and millions and millions of people, and it is still doing it. But remember, every great speech has a context. Lincoln and Churchill were speaking during a war. Reagan is at the Brandenburg Gate, the symbol of the tyranny of communism. Martin Luther King is trying to inspire and launch a civil rights movement. Speeches are great because of their context. So the Sermon on the Mount doesn't start in Matthew 5. It starts in Matthew There's this itinerant rabbi from his podunk town who starts preaching, and it goes viral. And here's what he preached. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. We say preach about Jesus, yes, but we also preach like Jesus. And what Jesus preached about more than anything else was the kingdom of heaven. Of God, And he did show and tell. He didn't just talk about it, but he showed people what it looks like when the reign of God has come to a people. So a few verses later, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so as Jesus is healing people and he's casting out demons, he's showing people this is what it looks like when God's reign has fully been embraced. And everybody's talking about this message and about this man. And with that as the context, we keep reading. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, 
and he began to teach them. So, right off the bat, what do we learn about the Sermon on the Mount? We learn that the words of Jesus are a king's speech. He's announcing the good news that God's reign is breaking into the world through his presence and through his ministry. And this good news expects a response. Repent. Turn your lives around and participate in this new thing that God is doing. It's very important to hear that what Jesus is doing in this speech, he's not offering salvation. He is declaring sovereignty. A new king is in town. Look at how people reacted when the speech was over. It says, when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He's not saying, accept me. He's saying, follow me. I am worthy to be the master and the teacher in every area of your life. So I want you to listen closely because this is the kind of community I am building. This speech is announcing the way of King Jesus. Not about life after death. It's about life before life after death. And he's saying you can experience the reign of God right now. And so when Jesus says repent, it's not a rebuke as much as it's an invitation. He's not saying you have to repent. He's saying you get to repent. God has given you the grace to turn your life around and get in on this good thing he's doing. And you don't want to miss it. But you will. If you only listen to my words and you don't obey them. You see, the words of Jesus are a king's speech that expect obedience. Now listen close. This is why this is important. Because a lot of people that claim they believe in Jesus treat the Sermon on the Mount like extra credit. There's your average Christian, he gets a bachelor's degree, and then some Christians, they want to get a graduate degree, and so they study the Sermon on the Mount. We would never call Jesus a fool, but we often act like things he said are foolish. Pastor, I don't know what world you live in, but do you really expect me to think hate's just as bad as murder, and lusting after a woman is the same thing as sleeping with her? You really expect me to serve my enemy and give something to somebody and not care if I ever get it back? You really expect me not to store up treasure, not to worry about my necessities, not to judge somebody if they judge me first? Now, I don't know what world you live in, but that doesn't work in the real world where I live. And so here's the phenomena. And here's the crisis of the church today. It's a crisis of discipleship. We've invented a brand of Christianity today where you can be a Christian and you don't have to do what Jesus said. What Dallas Willard called vampire Christianity. People that just want Jesus for his blood. They want, when they die, for Jesus to say, hey, my blood has covered your sin. It's all cool. I've built you a big house. Come on in. They want a Jesus that's going to fix things when they die, but not tell them how to live. So I want to remind you, it's not called the suggestions on the mount. 
The king expects obedience for your own good. Not because he's got an ego problem, not because he needs you to pump him up, but because the king knows what's best for you. So he ends the speech with another story that almost everybody knows, even if they don't know who said it. About two guys, they got the same vision. They want a house. They hear the same plan on how to build a house. They build a house that looks a lot alike. And they go through the same storm. And one guy's house crashes. And Jesus says, now if you're listening to all these things I'm saying, and you don't put them into practice, you're that foolish builder. But if you listen to me and do what I say, you will build a life that will make it when the storms come. This is a king that wants what is best for you. That's why the greatest speech ever doesn't start with commands. It starts with blessings. This is a speech that expects obedience and promises blessing. But we've got to unpack for the rest of this sermon. So what does it mean to have a blessed life? You see, I believe we're wired by God to want a good life. Now, there are some religions that say the only way you'll ever be happy is to deny your desire. I don't think we can do that. I think it's built into us to want a life that is good and meaningful and significant and satisfying. The question is, how do you get that life? And there are so many narratives out there on how to find a blessed life. And most of them say it's out there. The good life is out there, and you've got to go and obtain it. For example, to illustrate, when I was a young preacher, I got to go for the first time to Los Angeles. Now, I'd never heard uh, of uh, Beverly Hills. I'd heard of it. I'd never been there. So I wound up on this street called Rodeo Drive, supposed to be famous. And there's a famous store called Giorgio's, and I went in. There was nothing in there I could buy. So I left. But Mr. Heyman, the owner of Giorgio, sent me this letter the next week. Thanking me for coming by, saying, now I know you've heard of the fragrance for women, but we're coming up with a cologne for men, and you need to get some. And notice at the bottom, he said, it will change your life. I thought, amazing. I thought the path to a good life was healthy relationships, character change, knowledge of God. I just needed cologne. <laughs> this is the narrative. You can spray it on. You can put it on. What you need for a blessed life is a new job and a new car and a new house and maybe a new person to sleep with. And that thinking comes into the church more than we know. Now listen close and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Someone walks up and says, I hear you got a big new job and a giant raise. Oh, yes, I'm so blessed. I hear your scan came back clear and there's no cancer. Oh, I am so blessed. I get it. You ought to thank God when you get good news like that. But listen, unconsciously and subtly, here's what we start to believe. The blessed life is a life with a lot of stuff and not a lot of suffering. Now, isn't that how we often define the blessed life? A lot of stuff and not a lot of suffering. And by that definition, most of the world can never have a blessed life. 
And then along comes a king who gives a different kind of speech with a completely different narrative who says the, the blessed life is not about what you're getting but about who you're becoming. And he's promising a kind of life that storms can't threaten because all that stuff you can get, storms can blow away. But then he says at the end of his speech, this is a narrow way I'm offering Narrow, why? Not many people are invited? No, everybody's invited. Anybody can come on this way with me. No, it's a narrow way because most don't want to. It's a narrow way because most don't think my way is the path to a blessed life. Because Jesus defines blessing in a whole new way. And so he starts the speech. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you. Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so what we're going to do is just see three huge themes about what we call the Beatitudes or Jesus' definition of blessing. And the first thing Jesus says about the blessed life is it invites the least. He throws open wide the doors of the kingdom. And he does so by confronting the idea that only the winners are the people God has blessed. You see, I think a lot of people don't want Jesus' way because that's not what they think blessed looks like. And so I just thought, what would the Beatitudes of the world be? So I wrote some, and here they are. Blessed are the rich and famous, for they always get the best seats. Blessed are the attractive, for they will be on magazine covers. Blessed are those who always come in first, for they will sign many autographs. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they will have their names on buildings. Blessed are the healthy and fit, for they will never mind being noticed. Blessed are those who get their way, for they will win by intimidation. Blessed are the most connected, for they can always pull the right strings. Blessed are those on top, for they get to look down on everyone else. You see, nobody says, we're looking for a few meek men. Nobody wants to be persecuted if you could be powerful and popular instead. And when's the last time you ever saw poor in spirit on anybody's resume? 
And yet this king seems to think so highly of people that most view lowly. He seems to be quite impressed with people that aren't that impressive. In fact, they're not even trying to impress anybody. He's a king that was in the temple one day, and all these powerful, rich people were given all this great amount of money, offering it to God, and everyone's clapping for them. And then this widow walks up with two little coins. Nobody even noticed her, but the king did. He said, she's blessed. There's a woman in Acts 9 called Dorcas. Uh, you know, not a famous person. It says she did good and liked to help widows, make clothes for them. She died. Peter raised her to life. And I'm wondering today what people would do with Dorcas. Dorcas, you got a good thing going. You're an incredible seamstress. You ever thought about going national? We could do a website, Decoratives by Dorcas. You got to be thinking, expand the brand, Dorcas. Expand the brand. And I wonder if she would say, could I just be a nobody that likes to make food and quilts for widows? This is a kingdom for the broken and the unnoticed and the marginalized and those that would rather be faithful than be famous. This is a kingdom for beggars, not for boasters. The first thing about this kingdom is it's for people poor in spirit who declare their spiritual bankruptcy, who say, I'm not out here promoting how good I am. I'm counting on the goodness of the king. And you see, and, and the people that thought they were blessed could not get this. That's why they could not get Jesus. He said something in Matthew 21 that totally ticked them off. He said, I'll tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. Why? Because there's no swagger in the kingdom of God. King Jesus is inviting all that are typically ignored and viewed as not blessed to realize how favored they are by God. And so again, I wondered, if Jesus was speaking today to our culture and he gave the Beatitudes over, what might they sound like? And so I took a stab at it. Blessed are the overlooked, for they always have the attention of God. Blessed are the aborted, for they will be cherished forever in God's eternal family. Blessed are those who have been abused, for they have a judge in heaven. Blessed are those with autism, for they know God in ways most do not. Blessed are single parents. For their resilience puts a smile on the face of God. Blessed are the homeless, for they will be welcomed into heaven with great joy. Blessed are those who were abandoned by their dads, for they will be the first to be hugged by the Father in heaven. Blessed are those who know they've been bad, for they will know how good grace is. Jesus is just turning upside down the definition of the blessed life. Because he's more focused on inside out. See, the second thing we learn from the Beatitudes about the blessed life is that he's redefining what's best. Because your definition of blessed is going to depend on your definition of best, right? And Jesus' definition of best is not a lot of stuff and not a lot of suffering. 
Jesus says three things about what's best in the Beatitudes. And the first thing, he says, the best thing you could do is know God. Best is not never having to mourn. Best is being comforted by the Spirit of God when you do mourn. Best is walking in such integrity that you see God. You, you are all, always getting revelations of His heart. Best is knowing you're a child of God and just basking in His affection. Jesus says it's better to know God than to be known for anything or by anyone else. And then Jesus says, no, tell you something else, what's best? Best is putting the emphasis on your character. It's better to be merciful than to be successful. It's better to be humble than to be notable. It's better to care more about purity than celebrity. It's better in such a competitive culture to be the person that's always trying to bring peace than the person that always wins the fight. Jesus says, I care more about who you're becoming than about what you're acquiring. And here's why. Because a storm's coming. And the storm can't blow away your inner character. It can blow away your stuff. But the storm is going to reveal your character. So the best life puts the emphasis there. And then one more thing. Jesus says the best life takes the long view. He closes the Beatitudes with the most amazing thing. Be happy if you get persecuted for me. Now, I've got to be careful here. Two things. Number one about this word persecuted. Be careful how you use it. A lot of people walk around, we're just so persecuted today. There are Christians being persecuted. They're going to jail and they're dying. In America, sometimes being a Christian just means you're less popular. Okay? Also, some people are persecuted not because of Jesus, but because they act like jerks. <laughs> Don't confuse courageous with obnoxious. But here's what Jesus says. If you live my way, your values or going to condemn the values of the world. Now, I'm not saying you're going to condemn them. I'm simply saying the way that you live is going to feel like a rebuke to the way other people live, and they're going to push back. And so Jesus says, be happy when people are ugly because of your devotion to me. It will be so worth it when you receive your reward in heaven. And so all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the long view. He talks about hell. Stop doing stuff that's going to send you to hell. He talks about heaven. Do the kind of things that are going to matter in heaven. I was shaped as a young preacher by a, an African-American pastor named E.V. Hill. Great preacher. He preached in a very poor part of Los Angeles. He got invited to a rich suburb in a southern city to preach. And he stood up, this is so like him, and said, I'm driving around your suburb and I noticed it doesn't look like where I'm from. You got no graffiti. So I'm willing to give you some. Somebody bring me some paint, and I'm going to walk right all over your houses and your cars, the word temporary. Because none of it's going to last. And Jesus says that over and over. Matthew 6, don't hoard treasure down here. Stockpile treasure in heaven. The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. 
You see, the blessed life is only the best life if the blessing survives this life. Okay, that was so deep it confused me. So I'm going to try it again. The blessed life is only the best life if the blessing survives this life. So Jesus says, rethink what's best. Because I'm offering a life built to last. Jesus is not promising a storm-free life. Please hear that. Too many people are mad at God for not keeping a promise he never made. Jesus doesn't say, follow me and live the way I'm teaching and you won't have any storms. Not a storm-free life, a storm-proof life. It's an invitation to be a part of God's story. To be a part of something that's going to have eternal consequences. There's a kingdom on the way, and the righteousness of God is going to cover the earth. God's mighty new world is coming. And Jesus has started something that cannot be stopped. It will be fully realized. But here's the thing. If you hunger and thirst for things to be right, you can start living into that story right now. You can start modeling to a confused world what a really blessed life is. When we obey the way of King Jesus, we'll see next time, we're salt and light. We become powerful antibodies in a very sick world. Now, some are going to push back, but some are going to pull back from the path they're on because they have been made aware of a better way to do life. And so this is what the early Christians did. They went all the world and preached the gospel. And the gospel they preached wasn't, uh, you, need to, uh, you need to accept Jesus as your Savior so you'll be forgiven of your sins when you die and go to, go to heaven. That's, that's part of it, but that's not what they preached. What they preached was, there's a new king in town. And he's offering a better way. And you need to get in on it. In fact, look what their critics said about them in Mac 17. These people have made trouble everywhere in the world saying there's another king called Jesus. Now, if we're going to get in trouble, let it be for that. Let it be that we're telling the world, I'm sorry, but I got a different king. And he's called me to live a different way. Ukraine's been in the news a lot lately. Back in 2004, when this, the nation was much less democratic, they held elections. The challenger to the state party was named Viktor Yoshinko, and all the polls showed he was ahead. So the nation was surprised the day after the election when state-run television reported, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yashinko, has been decisively defeated. But what state-run government and television didn't count on was this lady, Natalia Dimitruk. 
You see, down in the corner of the screen was a box where she was signing to hearing impaired Ukrainians. She grew up a child of deaf parents. And while they're giving their narrative, she's signing. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They are lying. And I'm ashamed to translate these lies. Yashinko is our president. People all over the nation started texting. Within two weeks, a million Ukrainians were marketing in Kiev for new elections. And Yashinko became the next president. Because somebody had the courage to say, they're lying to you. What you've been told isn't true. That's what we do. We tell our friends and neighbors because we love them. What you've been told will give you a good life is an illusion. What you've been told about who matters to God is a lie. This is a God willing to bless all. This is a God that has sent a better king. You see, when we follow Jesus, we don't just receive a blessing. When we follow Jesus, we become a blessing. Maybe you can't make a speech, but you can live the best speech ever. And Jesus has invited you to a better way. And when you choose it, somebody watching you is soon going to meet a better king. So pray with me. So prepare our hearts, God, and our minds in these next few weeks to really listen to King Jesus. Take away our prejudices and our biases and our fears. And give us greater courage to actually practice what he said. And to believe with all our hearts there's a better way to live a blessed life. King Jesus, we hope you will come soon. But until you do, give us the faith and courage to walk your way. And we pray in your name. Amen.